Well, we, we are in Psalm 119 again. We are plowing our way through this uh, extended chapter on the glory and the sufficiency of God's word. And we are seeing all the ways that it impacts us as Christians, as believers, uh, in all the seasons of life that we are made to go through. Uh, we are seeing that it, the one lone constant that we have is the scriptures, such as what David was being taught, and I think such as what uh, we all are being taught at various um, points of our lives, that regardless of what else goes on in our lives, in our, in our world, uh, that the constant is the scriptures. The constant is God's word, and that's what we have to rely on. And such is kind of what we've been learning. Last week we were talking about this idea of assurance, the idea of praying to God for assurance of repentance, of faith, having that confidence in your salvation. And we noted, and I think I said last time, that I think prayers of assurance are probably the most popular prayers that we pray to God. Uh, it's the ones that we want to make real. God, make this thing that I want to have happen in my life real, this faith that I know I should have. Make it real in my life. Give me the assurance of that faith. And I think this morning the, 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 the idea we're going to look at is sort of the, I think, the other. If, if prayers of assurance are the first uh, most popular prayers, I think the second are probably prayers of consistency. Prayers of consistency. That's kind of what we're going to look at this morning, this idea of being a consistent Christian, a consistent believer. Um, just like we have the assurance, we pray to God to give us that consistency. And I think you'll see that this morning as we read our text. Let's read our text actually this morning. It's starting in verse 41. This is the sixth stanza, and we're going to read down through verse 48. David prays, let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. And I will meditate in thy statutes. I think this idea <coughs> excuse me, of consistency is something that we are just constantly chasing. There's, we are human we, we know our hearts. We know how fickle they are, that we will be in a moment where we are incredibly uh, impassionate and impassioned by the word of God and by some religious experience, and then we fade away. We are fickle humans that are easily distracted, that are easily um, turned away to our own ways. And so this, this prayers of consistency are such that continue throughout our lives. I can't tell me how many times I've prayed to God, let me uh, have this faithful walk, this continual walk with you. And I know my own heart. I know that it won't last forever. We are humans. We are characterized by ebbs and flows, by ups and downs. Such is why if confidence, if, if our Christianity rested in our consistency, 
that would be really bad news, would it not? If our Christianity rested in our consistency, that would be terrible news. And that's the good part, because regardless of how consistent you are, that's not the measure of your justification. Your justification comes by faith. It comes by a, a, a confident, sure moment in history in which Jesus took your sins and all of your faults and failures onto himself. And that is your confidence. And I would say, as we are going to see this morning, that that is your source of consistency too. That Jesus really is your consistency. You go back to that moment. I, I, I think about that quote that I mentioned last time that I just love, that, that one of my pastor friends, he mentioned that he doesn't mind if you bring up your sins, just make sure you go back 2,000 years because that's where they are. That's where all my sins are. And if you have that thought in your head, that's well, what leads to a consistent Christian life because you know that those sins have been paid for in full not 99% of the way, 100% of the way. And then even more than that. We are fickle humans. We go through ups and downs. We are bad, quote-unquote, at staying Christian, right? We're bad at staying Christian all the time. We have uh, moments where we react very poorly. We have moments where we don't act Christian at all. And if we, can, if we think about those more often than not, we can be like, am I even a Christian at all? But the good news is those moments don't define who we are in Jesus Christ. We are defined by Jesus Christ because he is the person who took our place. The good news of the scriptures is that our ability to, quote, stay Christian does not affect our declaration of righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's already declared for us already. That's already secured for us already. And this is what these scriptures tell us, that our consistency as Christians is cultivated as we are immersed in the truth of these scriptures. Such as what David is trying to do throughout this chapter, throughout his life really. He was finding solace, he was finding his support, his encouragement, his sustenance throughout all of his spiritual life in the truth of what God's word says. And he had less than half of what we have. He was looking forward onto a promise of a savior that was supposedly going to come through his line. He didn't have the reality of that truth like we do. The reality that it is a done deal that Jesus has already come. We are just waiting for him to come back and claim us as his own. This is the source, the basis for all of our consistent Christian walk. Going back to that place where Jesus has declared us righteous in him. This is the word. This is what the word tells us. Such is why here in this prayer for consistency, notice all the terms for the scriptures. We do this every week, but notice all the different varying terms that he employs. He calls them mercies in word in verse 41. Then he says, um, as I trust in thy word again. Verse 43, take not the word of truth out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. He calls it the law in 44, in precepts in 45, in testimonies in 46. 
And he calls them commandments and commandments in 48, 47 and 48, and ending with statutes. He is immersing himself in what God has said, not the way that he feels, not the way that he is uh, reacting at the present moment. He's basing his confidence for consistency. He's basing all of that on what God has said, because that cannot change. If you want something to be consistent, do something that cannot change. Rely on something that cannot waver, that cannot be altered, that cannot change one iota. That's the word of God. It cannot change. It cannot be altered. It doesn't waver. And so here this morning, quickly, I'm going to run through five quick lessons that I think will help us to cultivate, I think, our consistency as we base it on the truth of the scriptures, especially as we learn it from this stanza. So in verses 41 and 42... I think we have a lesson about our confession. A lesson about our confession. Notice what he says. Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. David is seeking after steadiness. He's seeking after stability in his spiritual life. This is his prayer. Let thy mercies come to me, O Lord. And notice his confession is rooted in that word, as we've been saying. And notice that phrase. It's the phrase that appears almost all the way throughout this chapter. According to thy word. This was what his life was revolved around. Let my whole life be lived according to your scriptures, according to your truth, to the things that you have declared about yourself. This is the good news. And this is what he was basing his entire life around. Let your mercies come to me. Let my whole life be revolved around according to your word, David is praying. And the good news then is that it's only found in a word that is good. The good news that we have for our lives, if we want good news in our lives, can only be found as we are reading the book that is the book of good news. And here, as he is praying, we are comforted and assured of his mercy the longer we are immersing ourselves in this word. Notice he says, Let thy mercies come also unto me, even thy salvation according to thy word, so shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me. The more he's in the word, the more he has an answer to him that, as he said, reproaches him. He is equipped. He is enabled. He is empowered to give an answer to all the reproach, the disgrace, the dishonor, the perhaps indignity that he is being faced with. I think both this is a, uh, a reference to both physical and spiritual reproach. Both the comments from peers and friends the, the derogatory remarks of those perhaps that he was perhaps serving with, perhaps that he was serving around and being around as a king in that time. But I also think too, as we looked at last week, that this was his answer to the devil's reproach. Any time 
The devil wanted to haunt or torment his soul with things that he has done. He was going to the word. Let thy mercies come. Let them fly unto me speedily so that I have an, will have an answer to answer that Satan, that serpent that haunts me and taunts me with things that I have done against you. This is what he's praying. This is his confession. His confession is, I can't answer him. I have no answer for those that are around me except your mercy comes to me. Except your merciful word be the words that I say, the words that I speak. And in that way, he is uh, being amply comforted and counseled and made to be confident by making his answer the mercy of God. And the mercy of God is not just an amorphous thing, an abstract thing. The mercy of God is a person. Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord. He is making Christ his very answer, the Christ that he was promised, the son of David who is going to make him a house, as we learn in 1 Samuel 17. He is making that hope, that promise, that's his answer. That was his answer to Satan's assaults. That's why when we read in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to take up the shield of faith. We are taking up Christ's faith for us. That's what repels all of the darts and the wiles of the devil. That re- that's what repels all of Satan's reproach and assaults is when we stand in the, in the one who has stood for us and stand in his mercy, Jesus Christ. We were talking a lot about Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, last week. And here again, I love this passage. Listen to this passage that he writes about. And his own uh, torments and travail as he is being assaulted by the, the devil. He says, Martin Luther writes, Be of good courage and cast these dreadful thoughts out of your mind. When the devil pesters you and throws your sins up to you and declares that you deserve death and hell... We ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. When the devil tempts you and distracts you with reproach, with fear, with regret, with shame, speak these words to the devil. Yes, I know I deserve that, but what of it? Jesus has taken it for me. I know I deserve hell. I am deserving of that fate, but that fate has been exchanged in the great exchange that happened on the cross where Jesus took my fate and gave me his faith. You speak that, and that is your answer, as he says. So I shall have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me. That's your answer. Christ is your answer. The mercy of God is your answer. That's your confession. Whenever the, certain, uh, the, the serpent, the, the, the devil, Satan himself, seeks to devour you in thoughts of reproach, this is your answer. This is your answer to his indictment of your soul. 
that I have a judge who has become my attorney and he has taken all of my case unto himself and he has declared me not guilty. I am not condemned. I know I deserve that condemnation, but I am not condemned because of what my attorney, Jesus Christ, has declared for me. This is our confession. Notice secondly though, look at verses 44 and 45. Here, I think we see a lesson, a lesson about our devotion. Notice his prayer. So shall I keep thy law continually, forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Here we see the pattern, the sort of pathway of the Christian life that our confession leads to our devotion. What we say with our mouth leads to how we ought to live. What he was learning was indeed infecting how he was living. This is what the truth of God's word does. Yes, it tells us what to believe, but that belief leads to our actions. It informs us how to live. And it says, I like how he words it, it informs him how to walk at liberty. You know, see, here David is saying and making an important point. He's declaring an important aspect of the Christian life of walking at liberty, which runs opposite to how everyone who is not a Christian views the Christian life, right? How many of you have heard that said to you before? That they, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to have to follow all those rules. I want to have fun in my life. I want to be able to live my life. And if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to follow rules. I'm not going to be able to have fun. <laughs> well, one, that's a complete misrepresentation of the scriptures. And maybe that's our fault, and maybe that's their fault for being misinformed. Maybe we have misrepresented what Christianity is about. But Christianity is not about following rules in the sense of we are following these rules in order to be right. Christianity is, right as we have confessed, it's about confessing our life is found in the rule follower, or excuse me, in the rule maker who has become the rule follower for us, the rule breakers. That's the confession which leads to our devotion, that we confess that we believe that the one who has made all the rules, made all the laws, made himself like us, And kept and followed and fulfilled all of those rules and laws in our stead. For we who broke them all. That's our confession. That's what leads to our devotion here. That we can walk freely. Walk at liberty, he says, after God's precepts. He says, I will walk at liberty for I seek thy precepts. You see... Contrary to what mankind believes about Christianity, whatever they believe, whatever freedom they are actually thinking that they have is actually more slavery. Sin is slavery. It's not freedom. It's not liberty. You are being enslaved to yourself. Because sin, as its nature, has you at the center. And you at the center is slavery because you're enslaved to yourself. Salvation, that's liberty. That's freedom. Where we read in 2 Corinthians, I think it is, where he says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
here. We can walk at liberty because we have been made to see our true slavery. And we've been released from those chains. Charles Bridges, the great commentator on this chapter, Psalm 119, he says, Men of the world see what religion takes away, but they see little of what it gives. Such is why they think that it's not a free thing to become a Christian. It is. Your freedom, your freedom now is freedom to, yes, live life, but live life to the glory of God. Live life with a much greater, fuller, more joyful purpose than has ever been experienced. It's the life of a believer. The life of one who is in Christ. Sin is bondage. It's not liberty. It's the opposite of liberty. Actually, I would say that sin is really just a slow death. It's a slow death in the deceitful demise of your own gratification. And you're satisfying your own self. And you're believing in these promises that are uh, on all these guarantees that are never fulfilled. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers, and will never satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Such as why those who are in sin are enslaved. Because they're constantly looking for something else to satisfy them. But Christianity, the Bible, the gospel is liberty This is our devotion to the Lord Jesus. Because of his devotion to us, we are now devoted to him, as he says, to follow him continually, forever and ever, because he is the one who has made us free, free in himself. And this is why David is here praying that this word of truth would keep him loving and living for that same truth. Lord, keep me devoted. Keep me living for you. Keep me confessing so that I may continually be devoting myself to your truth. A lesson about devotion. Quickly, let's look at verses 43 and 46. And here I think we see a lesson about our witness. Notice what he says. And take not the word out of... The, excuse me. And take not the tr- word of truth... Utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. I will speak, verse 46, of thy testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. David's confession of Christ and devotion to Christ here leads him to witness of Christ. To make a witness to the Lord Jesus. I will speak of thy testimonies, he says speak here is a word that has a lot of meaning but here it's just this idea of singing and shouting and conversing about the testimonies of God it's this idea that all of his language all of his words would be utterly devoted and to witnessing to God's mercy to God's testimonies the testimonies of Christ this was his witness It was the first thing in his mouth. Notice what he says. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. He wants it to be the first thing on his lips. And he's saying, God, keep it there. Keep your mercy on my lips. Keep your grace on my speech and on my tongue. That I may be one that uh, is unashamed to witness to you. And to witness of you. This was his prayer. 
that his life would become a witness as he confesses the truth and is devoting himself to a truth to that truth he would be the witness of that truth and this is the pattern this is what the word of god does to us that the more we are in god's word the more we are given confidence and clarity to live boldly and unashamedly for that word let me read you a verse we're going to get there uh, in our study on sunday evenings Eventually, this is coming from Second Timothy chapter one. I'm just going to read it really quickly if I can if I can get there. Second uh, Timothy chapter one verse eight, and Paul gives his disciple Timothy the same charge that if you are impassioned and emboldened to live for the gospel, live for it unashamedly. He says Second Timothy one eight, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God. These testimonies of the Lord, these are what we are to live for, to witness to without shame, as he says. He says, let let me not be ashamed even as he's witnessing also among kings, among his peers, those he was most closest to around him in his uh, occupation. He was saying, let me be a witness to you. Let me, to even them, confess your truth. And his confidence was always derived from this word of truth, as he says in verse 43. Take not that word of truth out of my mouth. But let me be enabled, let me not be disappointed, let me not be discouraged uh, in my witness for you, let me not be ashamed of being called a fool, being called a loser for your truth. Let me be confident in this. Let me be confident of your word, and such ought to be said of us. How, uh, How is your witness of the Lord Jesus? How is, uh, especially those around you, your places of work, your places of fellowship, your places of connection, your places where you are with family and friends? Like David, are you uh, unafraid to bear the perhaps ridicule and the shame and the reproach that you might be uh, thrown by those who are around you as you testify to God's testimonies, as you witness to God's truth? David is saying that God's consistency, Christ's consistency for us, is what makes us consistent in our witness. His faithfulness is what keeps us faithful in our witness of Him. But I must hasten to the fourth lesson in verse 47. Look at what it says. Here we have a lesson about our delight. He says, and I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. And notice what he says also in verse 48. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. He repeats that phrase twice. These words were his love, his delight. And he was delighting himself in these words. And the more he spent time with it, the more he found it to be his delight. The longer he was spending time in the word, the longer he was finding that word to be his source of joy. You know, we can read that word delight here and we can just think of that happiness, joy, satisfaction. 
but I really love what the Hebrew does here. You know, this Hebrew word for delight actually has a more picturesque meaning because its, its, ap- its application to us is actually to sort of to stroke or to overspread or to smear over your eyes. So literally, he was praying to God, let your words be smeared over my eyes. So that's all I can see. So that's all I can see as I walk in my life. I see your truth. I see your confidence. I see your mercy for me. Let that be all I see. And that's what leads to his delight. That's what leads to his satisfaction. That he's having God's mercy and grace just smeared over his eyes. This is a wonderful prayer. And this is the grounds for all of our delight and our joy too. That even as we are inconsistent, God is not. And the more that we are smeared this truth over our eyes, the more we can see that God doesn't change. We change. The world around us changes. But God does not. And we can have abundant joy and delight when we delight ourselves in something that doesn't change. It's not like a Christmas present that a five-year-old gets who enjoys for five minutes and then moves on to the next. (laughs) It's something that lasts forever. There's a funny home video of myself. This is, I try not to be conceited or narcissistic, and this is one of those times. (laughs) Because in this video, it's funny, I am probably four or five. And, you know, it's one of those awesome home videos of when you're young. And it's a Christmas day, and I've been given all these gifts, and I take out this VHS tape of some John Wayne film. I used to be insanely into John Wayne, and I was really happy with it for a split second because it's captured on camera forever. I look at it, and I throw it over my shoulder, and I move on to the next thing. Okay, what's the next thing I can open? And as silly as that is, that's really indicative of us, is it not? That we have what we want in front of us, but then we are not satisfied. We are not delighted in it for more than an instant. And we move on to the next thing. That's because we change. Our hearts are fickle. They're frail. They're fragile. They move and they shift with the seasons and with the times. But what David is praying for and what he's praying for throughout this stanza God keep me consistent and delighting in you because you never change you are always consistent your joy in life doesn't have to vacillate or ebb if it's tied to a person who likewise doesn't vacillate or ebb he doesn't change Charles Bridges, again, he writes, The joy of the saint is not that false and polluted and deadly joy, which is all that the worldling knows and all that he has to look for, but it flows spontaneously from the fountain of living waters through the pure channel of the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. That's your joy. It's found in Jesus Christ himself, a person who doesn't change. It's joy that's consistent. It doesn't waver with the circumstances. I have a little bit of time, I think. Maybe. Okay. Uh, turn to, well, you don't have to turn there. You can. Uh, if I can find it, it, it may take me a while because it's the book of Habakkuk. 
It's one of those minor prophets that's difficult to find. Habakkuk chapter 3. And just listen to these words because these words tell us about a joy that's consistent. Habakkuk 3 verse 17. Notice how he describes the circumstances here. He says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. He's describing something very uh, dire here, is he not? A famine. Loss of food and flock and flourishing. And notice what his next words are. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. How can he? How can he have that type of joy and that type of uh, delight and satisfaction when all around him is anything but that? It's the opposite of that. It's a famine in the land. And he's saying I will rejoice because his joy isn't tied to his circumstances. His delight is tied to a person who doesn't change, who is eternally, constantly consistent. That's our prayer. Lord, tie me, have your truth smeared over my eyes so that I may be consistent in my delight in you. And lastly, verse 48. Our fifth lesson here in this text, he says, a lesson is a lesson about our service. A lesson about our service. Look at it again. Actually, I need to turn there. Psalm 119, 48. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. He's seeking a heart that's consistently active. He says, lift, I will lift up my hands. I will lift up my hands to work, to serve, to be employed about your service. This is his prayer. That God, let all of these truths of who you are and what you are and what you have said and what you have done motivate and, and activate my hands to be about your service. This we see as it comes at the end of the stanza that our service for God is not what we do for God. It's a byproduct of what God has done for us. It's something that happens after we have been enveloped in the truth of what God has accomplished for us as we are smearing that truth of God over our eyes, as we are delighting and confessing and confiding in our Lord Jesus. We are, our hands will be lifted up to service for him, to be about his work, to be about his work. We are moved to serve. Here, as he says, I will meditate as he thinks, as he muses, as he reflects, again, as he confesses that truth, that's when he, his hands are moved to work, to service. And here we have consistent service and consistent delight, consistent witness and devotion and confession, all found in the word of truth. You want a consistent Christian life? Go back to the scriptures. Stay in the word. Let us pray this morning.